You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Joseph Urban, who is currently a principal researcher at the Czech Institute of Informatics, Robotics, and Cybernetics. His research focuses on artificial intelligence for large-scale computer-assisted reasoning, which includes automated theorem proving, inductive reasoning, and formalization and verification of mathematics. Joseph's PhD thesis is titled Exploring and Combining Deductive and Inductive Reasoning in Large Libraries of Formalized Mathematics, which he completed in 2004 at Charles University in Prague. We discuss his work in the thesis on the Mizar problems for theorem proving, which made a library of formalized mathematics available to automated theorem provers. He then developed the Mizar proof advisor, which brought machine learning to the problem of automatically selecting premises that can then be used to prove a theorem. We discuss how the intersection of machine learning, reasoning, and mathematics has evolved since his PhD, how the Mizar problems are still in use today, and we discuss his recent exciting work on getting neural networks to translate between informal and formal mathematics. As always, we end the show with some valuable advice for researchers. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash thesis review, where you can subscribe and become a recurring supporter, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. I'm pleased to announce that we have a new state-of-the-art of 11 coffees contributed by Lee Zamparo, at L Zamparo on Twitter. Thank you to all of those who have contributed so far. Your donations are important for keeping the show up and running. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Joseph Urban with Exploring and Combining Deductive and Inductive Reasoning in Large Libraries of Formalized Mathematics on the Thesis Review. So in your thesis, you look into a lot of things related to proofs and mathematics and logic as well. So maybe to start with just a classic question, do you think that mathematics is invented or is it discovered? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too well versed in all these um, philosophy or of, of math uh, topics. So you know, I, I probably know the sort of standard knowledge, like that there are these people like Gettle who firmly believed that there is objective platonic mathematical world out there. And even though he knew that um, there are various options that, I don't know, the axiom of choice or the continuum hypothesis might or might not 
uh, hold like that we, we have, for example, models of mathematics or models of set theory, where both of these things are admissible, he would still like insist uh, that there is only one one choice and he he would be trying to find the, the correct choice. So so th this would be this would be the Platonic world, the Platonist interpretation where the, the mathematicians like Gödel would be discovering the truth, right? Like they, they wouldn't be inventing uh, the truth. They, they would be discovering what, what is out there. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the invented, uh, in, invented would mean like we are creating our axiomatic systems and our theories in, in such a way that it's um, somehow most useful in some real world and, and this sort of platonic universe somehow does not exist, maybe. Yeah, like one way of seeing it would be like, what, what would be the opposite of this platonic view? It, it's that math is just a tool that mm -hmm. we invented mm -hmm. to, for instance, describe the natural phenomena mm -hmm. around yeah. us. And then sure, it has ways of kind of linking together through these logical steps, different things. But we ultimately kind of just invented this arbitrary thing, and then we explore within it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it was kind of discovered, then uh, we might expect that if some alien civilization came and visited us, and they had some notion of mathematics, then the way that they write it might be a bit different. But ultimately, they would have, yeah. you know, the notion of a prime number, they would have yeah. a lot of the same things that we've found. Yeah, yeah. Uh yeah, so th this is this is deep, and so so I'm I'm on the foundation of mathematics uh, list where there, there was at some point this discussion about the the Martians basically about the the Martian mathematics, uh, and I and I read it with interest, but I I'm probably not. The, the most uh, thinking person about it, like the, the, the ultimate authority about it. But like, I, I agree that there, there, there is definitely this sort of formalist view of mathematics that there are just manipulating symbols, right? Like they, they would say that uh, really math is just some sort of environment, like some symbolic environment in which you have some rules and from that you can derive some mathematical statements and they they would try to isolate themselves from from the um, interpretation of of those things as much as they can and they would sort of switch themselves to to this sort of game symbolic game style interpretation of mathematics and then mm -hmm. Like as as far as I remember, all, all these uh, streams, that there is also like especially in the Netherlands where I lived for six years, that there is the intuitionist school school started by Brouwer, uh, but but also like it goes before Brouwer, like there is Poincaré, who who like quite a bit disagreed with the sort of stream in math, which 
um, sort of started with, I don't know, Frege, for example, and the, all, all these logicians who, who created really the, the solid mathematical foundations. And by like Poincaré would also like insist that mathematicians are doing things that are um, beyond the formalism that, that are sort of intuition based. Yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, I think I actually did ask it for a reason because like mm-hmm. when I was reading through your work and and lo- and thinking about these different things that we'll talk about today, like the theorem provers, mm-hmm. they're all kind of built on different, I guess, sets, different foundations for mathematics, yeah. right? Yeah. So you could choose kind of set theory and then even like different axioms within set theory. Yeah. And I just started wondering, like, are these somehow kind of arbitrary and is each one setting up its own mathematics or is it all kind of the same thing? So, so when, when I, when I lived in the Netherlands, because I, I was living with um, the people who were interested in the constructive mathematics, we were at some point considering to create a mailing list called the foundational flame wars. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so these these are things that some people perceive very strongly so for example that there is a camp of constructive mathematicians who really strongly disagree to the law of excluded middle to a or not a as as being like an obvious axiom that you should be allowed to use um mm-hmm. That, that goes back to, to Brouwer, as far as I know. And it, uh, it also has some advantages when you are aiming for computational interpretations of mathematical proofs. So uh, if you have excluded middle, uh, like turning a proof into an algorithm is challenging, whereas what the constructivists have is basically each each proof corresponding to some typically like horribly inefficient but but still still a sort of a runnable algorithm that that's like one of the things that they sort of get for free from the uh, constructive proofs so so this definitely makes a lot of difference for for them but then if you and and this is actually big. So, for example, Koch is by default constructive, and it's probably the biggest uh, formal proof assistant today, used by, for example, the programming language community for all sorts of uh, formalizations and verifications. Uh, but but if you talk talk to mathematicians, like for example, Kevin Buzzard is sort of a guy who is famous as a mathematician but he recently started to play with formalization and he very explicitly says that constructivism is not what he and 99 percent of mathematicians are interested in mm-hmm. so there there is like uh from his point of view i think the sort of standard mathematician point of view is uh, if you give me the theorems that I like, then I'm not too much interested in the foundations. So yeah, if yeah. you if you allow me to have my real numbers, my complex numbers, 
my category theory, my group theory, and, and all these things that I'm used to, like, hold, hold there, uh, like, like the obvious theorems, I don't know, the, the Brouwer six-point theorem or the like like all, all these intermediate value like fundamental theorem of algebra as long as you have reasonable foundations to build these things up then then i would say people like kevin would say that they don't care about the foundations so yeah it, it's maybe a, a case of the mathematicians are going to do math in whatever they whatever way that they want yeah and then they just need some way of formalizing it, perhaps, but it's maybe not uh, that much of a <laughs> practical concern. Yeah, it it seems to me definitely that uh, uh, it 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 is the opinion of 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 these um, mathematicians who who sort of just got excited about form formalization. Uh, I think what they are finding out is that it's it's not so easy uh, because like it would be the ideal to to sort of have the machine to do what you mean, but if you if you really want to go to the theorem proving, which is what what they are saying, like what people like Kevin would say, right? Like let's embrace theorem proving, formal proof verification, etc. Then at least the way these things are set up today in practically all proof assistance is that you need to go to, to how things are represented. So for example, at some point you need to decide whether your underlying data structure is a set or a list or some decorated mm -hmm. tree. And and you can make the case that this doesn't matter for your particular theorem that you are proving, that it will hold for all these three data structures or that there is some sort of trivial transformations in, in which. But unfortunately, like once you start formalizing, if you want to go down to the axioms and really show what you did is a proof checkable uh, proof, right? Uh, then you will have to make these decisions. And, and that's right. sort of going against this sort of, uh, I am the high level mathematician. I am not so much interested in the foundations and the low level. Like the, the formalization sort of forces it on. So that's the sort of quick, quick comment on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it actually does probably end up mattering once you start formalizing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so then the title of your thesis is Exploring and Combining Deductive and Inductive Reasoning in Large Libraries of Formalized Mathematics. Maybe before we go into the contents of the thesis, could you just talk about your background um, leading up to doing a PhD? How did you get interested in these different areas of uh, formalization of mathematics and also computer science? Uh -huh. So I... Like when I was, I don't know, 18, I was wondering what should I do? And this was like uh, two years after the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia at the time. And you, you, you know, like all of the Eastern Europe 
went through a big uh, shake at, at that time, like there was the Berlin Wall taken down, etc. So, so we were like flooded, like suddenly from from the very strict uh, Marxism is all you need uh, philosophy, uh, which we which was like the official thing uh, taught to everybody here, and like like I, I would say before the revolution, the, the sort of standard curriculum for technically oriented people would be to study something like physics and uh, research some how to make a nuclear bomb or whatever, right? Uh, and uh, suddenly, like in 1989, all, all these things opened to us. And for example, what we could study was like, how, how does the market economy works? So, so, so that, that, like, that, there were a lot of these topics open. And that, that was all very interesting, but, but it seemed to me that um, the, the sort of mm, very uh, unclear to me at the time question was, what is this mathematics? So, so, so I was studying in some sort of math-oriented schools until then, and I, I was like reasonably good at like did this high school algebra, etc., whatever they taught us. But but I didn't didn't really have a good idea what it is uh, that is that the mathematicians are doing and how what what is its relation to physics and what is like axiomatic mathematics, etc. So so I went to study math to to basically learn about it, even though I knew that, that it will probably be like a totally useless uh, skill in the sort of post, post-communist Czechoslovakia out of sort of pure interest at the time. And uh, like very quickly, I, I, I have realized that um, what, what they are teaching us when, when they teach us math is to prove theorems and, and that's partially a very algorithmic thing in the sense that you you know like after you have done five ten proofs in algebra calculus etc you you know sort of the tricks you you know that now now you need to expand the definition or use some calculation etc etc mm-hmm. so so it looked almost algorithmic to me and i got interested in these questions like can we can we mechanize it completely and mm-hmm. That's like you know where, where the hard logic comes in. You you learn about the Gödel uh, incompleteness theorems. You you learn about the the Church and Turing undecidability. Uh, so so uh, so so these are sort of the the negative results that tell you that mathematics sort of cannot be mechanized in in some strong way, which was like the whole of the like people like Hilbert in the beginning of the last century and mm-hmm. then like I, I was still pretty interested in so so what right like I I am I am learning math myself and I am becoming quite good at it so so how is it that I can I can do that and how, how does some Gödel or a Church or Turing theorem prevent me from doing that? And sh- shouldn't there be something uh, like a way how to teach a computer to do it at least as well as I am I am doing it? Because it, it really felt like a learned skill. 
So I quite quickly, I, I started to basically investigate how to make computers learn, like what, what are the ways uh, the machine learning uh, methods that um, are available. And that, that actually, even though I formally finished math, like logic and set theory, already my master's thesis was um, basically about trying to do machine learning over large mathematical corpora. Uh, yeah, so that's that's how I sort of got into it. So there's this aspect of formalization that we've mm-hmm. mentioned a few times. And in the thesis, you choose to use this library or wh- whatever you would call it called Mizar. Mm-hmm. So could you just introduce the idea of formalization, maybe for people who haven't heard of this before, and what motivated you to focus on this Mizar uh, way of doing it? Mm-hmm. So it actually in my master thesis, I I played with two systems. One was called IMPS that was created by the um, people at the Maitri Corporation. That was some sort of uh, almost military funding agency in in the U.S. and it it was. It was done by a team led by Bill Farmer, and they. Uh, so it was quite a different system from Mizar. It was a system uh, based on some uh, form of higher logic and written in Lisp, and it was all beautiful Lisp code, and I really liked it. Uh, and uh, it, it was also built. Um, using an approach called little theories. So, so you, you were writing many little theories and somehow stating the connections, the translations between them. And I really like the code. I, I really like the Lisp code. Uh, but the, um, the library itself was, was sort of too heterogeneous for me. And also the, the foundations were sort of slightly too complicated for me. So, so, so then I was looking for something which would be like the standard textbooks of mathematics that I, I was taught. And uh, basically the, the belief that each of us was taught at um, the master's courses was that math is built up on top of set theory and some some form of first order logic basically. So so you have these various set theories. One of them is the like von Neumann Gödel Bernay set theory, which is a first order finitely axiomatized uh, set theory. So that's very good because you have like first order logic only plus a finite set of axioms. So so th- this is the setting in which people have been playing with set theory uh, with sort of automated theorem proving because in, in first order automated theorem proofs, it's really easy if you have just first order logic and a finite set of axioms. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I I was looking for something like that and I saw basically like internet was a new new thing like back in the 1990s and we were like from somewhere like 1993, four, we, we had it accessible and, and this Mizar library was actually 
on the internet, like already in the early, early nineties. And I, I just found it using something like Google search, like it wasn't called Google search at the time. And, uh, so that the, the Mizar system is, is sort of what I was looking for. Like it's, it's formalized a reasonable amount of mathematics. I think they had something like 500 articles, maybe a bit more at, at the time, which was a lot, like if, if it, it was more than anybody else had. It, it was based on this basically first order set theory, which I could understand. And the main bug of it was that it wasn't open source. And I, even though it looked really nice, I, I couldn't get the source code and understand how it works. So a lot of my master thesis was because I was this, like in the nineties, we were all these open source anti-Microsoft hackers, free software um, people. So we hated closed source and I wouldn't touch something which were binary only, but I had to. So I spent a lot of time reverse engineering it to, <laughs> to, to sort of, I, I was thinking that I can reverse engineer it basically, which was totally hopeless. Uh, but any, anyway, like, like, uh, I, I got into Mizar because it was big. They, they did a lot of work in formalization and it was done in the setting, which I could understand logically. Like it's, this was the setting, which I studied in, in my master courses of mathematics, like first of all, logic and set theory and the formalization that's, that's a big topic. So that that's really a topic which emerged, I would say in the 1960s, maybe a bit earlier. And when people basically started to, to really take the idea of formally, uh, checking mathematical theorems using computer programs seriously. So, so they, they sort of invented uh, dedicated like programming languages with which to, to write the mathematical formulas so that uh, the, the computer can parse it and then coming up with, with various logical foundations for it, like whatever set, set, set theory, first of logic, type theory, higher order logic. And uh, they, they were writing all, all these proof checkers in which you could uh, write the formulas, write the proofs, and then run the algorithm to tell you whether, whether the proof is really a proof of, of the formula that you are doing. So this formalization, I guess like the high level idea again, is like almost converting mathematics into something which resembles code. Yeah. And then it could be formally almost executed and verified and it could kind of build on itself. You could build you could prove a theorem and then add it to a library and then refer to that theorem again and so yeah. on. And so you could imagine different applications, um, like practical applications, like formally verifying some program. Um, or you could imagine maybe even things in education, like Kevin Buzzard that you mentioned. I think he's trying to formalize all of undergraduate mathematics curriculum, yeah. which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Do you think that you had some underlying motivation. Was it due to applications or was it just interesting to you, this idea of formalization? 
that you decided then to kind of focus on this for a long time? Oh, I, uh, to be honest, I, I, I wasn't initially interested in formalization. <laughs> I, I was really <laughs> interested in, uh, in doing strong AI in, in doing mm. theorem proving in a, in a way in which I am doing, in which I have learned to do it when, when I was taught mathematics and formal math was something which I decided to go into because I, I, I saw that the whole theorem proving field is, is working on this symbolic level at the time that you, you are somehow having like these rules like resolution and superposition and paramodulation, some rewritings, etc., and and all of that requires you to have the um, formulas uh, fully formally parsed in your computer, and and formal math for me was like this is a huge corpus where. I can do this. I can I can parse things as as these objects that can be manipulated by the inference rules, uh, but but I can also do all, all sorts of machine learning on top of that. So it was mm -hmm. it was not really that I would be somehow interested in making all of the world formalized. At least not initially. Like. I, you, you know, I have been living with the formalization people for such a long time that I have embraced a, a lot of their goals uh, gradually. That's the Stockholm sy syndrome or whatever. Uh, but uh, um, so, so like the QED, I, I've been actually organizing the QED workshop after 20 years back in 2014. Uh, so, so I, I like all, all, all these great ideas let's make the world let's make at least the world of mathematics fully computable right like the, the leibniz dream like calculimos right uh, but in initially it was really a tool for me because i i was thinking fine like if i if i start scanning textbooks of mathematics what shall i do with it next like like the linguistic methods wherein that good at the time like it's like only like two three years ago when we did the first experiment when we took something like latex and and ran some sort of lstm over it or transformer or whatever and it gives us something formal but like 25 years ago this was this was already like a hurdle which i wouldn't know how, how to how to overcome in my program of training a computer to, to do mathematics. So if, yeah, maybe if, if I was starting today, I would start just with freestyle mathematical textbooks. Mm. Uh, well, not, not, not sure, but, but at that time, like going into formal math was like the only option for, for me, basically. Yeah, I see. Yeah. That's really interesting. So yeah, you mentioned, the um this qed project there was this qed manifesto yeah. that you've mentioned in some of your talks and i went back and read it and it was interesting i think it was what from the was it from the 60s oh no no this was this was actually in the 90s the qed manifesto. Oh, in the 90s. okay yeah yeah it happened just at the time when i was looking into it yeah yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they talk about kind of, they lay out this like path for yeah. uh, formalization and, and where it can go. But then ultimately, th that's interesting that kind of the underlying driving thing was the artificial intelligence or the machine learning side of it. For me, not for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, for, for you, yeah. So, well, I just had one quick comment on that. Uh, so the the QED people were sort of a different, uh, like heterogeneous bunch. So, so they had people like John McCarthy among them, but they they also had these like hardcore for, hardcore formalizers among them, like the Mizar guy and, and Andre Tribulets. And uh, the there is a tension in the QED manifesto between these two groups. So, so for example, at at some points they are saying things like that people have spent too much time. Uh, figuring out how to prove theorems, how to do the AI, and, and maybe a smaller achievable goal is to formalize things like with human assistance rather than shooting shooting for these big goals. But, but then again, they, they have all sorts of other quotes which, which also say that if you create this, this huge repository of human knowledge, then it will be usable for all sorts of interesting experiments, etc. So uh, it's um, it's 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 um, probably an interesting sociological phenomenon like this this QED, and it uh, so 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 the story is that they had these two two workshops in the nineties, like one in the Argon Laboratory, which was like like the main theorem proving place in the US at the time. And the other one was actually so 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 there there probably still is a mailing list about QED which I was reading as a student, and it you can you can find on this mailing list how at some point somebody says, you know, QED project already exists. It is called Mizar. So so at some point the, these like Western Western theorem proving people discovered the the Eastern. Polish behind the Iron Curtain uh, project, and, and the initial impression was that the day that the QED so, has, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and then the the second workshop was actually organized by by the Polish people in Warsaw. I don't know, it's like in the late late nineties, and yeah, they they had people like John McCarthy and John Harrison there. So it, it was probably quite interesting. I, I was too young to be there. I, I, I didn't know about it. Yeah, so then maybe let's start to uh, talk about what you did in the thesis then as a, as a step towards this. So I guess the first step that you took in this thesis was to make this Mizar li library available to these automated theorem provers. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe talk through just the backstory of it or, or just the idea of it? Uh-huh. So I already said that I tried to reverse engineer Mizar in my master thesis and that didn't work. So when I decided to do PhD, my supervisor did a very good thing. He, he forced me to, to do it right. And he sort of, despite my um, unwillingness to, to embrace a clo closed source program, he basically forced me to get the source code from, from the Mizar people. And by, by the way, the, the way how to get the source code was 
the, the Mizar people ha had a rule that you can only get the source code if you write a Mizar article. It was like a meritocracy. You can you can touch the source code only after you have shown that you are willing to learn to formalize in that in that system. So so I formalized some set theory to 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 get it from them, and then they gave it to me, and then I started playing with that. And I saw quite quickly that I can uh, do what I wanted to do, which was extracting theorem proving problems from from this uh, like proof assistant from from this formali formalization environment for the state of the art automated theorem provers. So so there, there is this distinction between interactive theorem proving and automated theorem proving, which I already mentioned when talking about the QED people. So, so automated theorem proving people, they really strive to do the sort of strong AI thing. They, 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 their dream would be to, to take the last Fermat's theorem, give it to, to the computer together with all the necessary axioms and definitions, and then wait for one hour and get the proof of last Fermat from, from the system, right? So that, that's the uh, automated theorem proving dream. And the interactive theorem proving people are saying, well, this is too hard, but uh, formalization and verification of proofs still is extremely useful. So we will build systems which allow the human to, to advise the machine and the machine to, to sort of help the human with filling, filling the gaps. So, mm -hmm. so this is what are all these interactive theorem proving systems and Mizar is basically, basically one, one of them. And uh, you, with more or less work, basically in all these systems, you can, um, you can translate from from the typically richer formalism of the interactive theorem prover to typically the more simpler, more sort of uniform, more bare bones formalism of the automated theorem provers. And, and that's what I did for Mizar. So I, I was like, like the sort of question number one when I got my hands on the source code of Mizar was how, how many of these theorems in the Mizar library, like at the time it could have been like 30,000 theorems, like top, top level lemmas in, in, the, in the Mizar library, how, how many can the current automated theorem proving technology prove? Uh, so mm -hmm. so that, that's what I did. I, I basically translated the sort of more complicated Mizar formalism to the less complicated like simple first order logic formalism used by the automated theorem provers. And I ran the experiment. I, I basically tried to see how much of them the automated theorem provers can prove. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in this case, and at this stage, when we say automated theorem prover, that component of it doesn't include any machine learning or any notion of intelligence in some sense. <laughs> Well, now, now you are certainly offending the the people who have been building automated theorem proofs since nineteen sixty. I guess I, I meant that like you don't you don't you don't like learn the automated theorem prover from some data set in that no, sense. No, 
no, it could no, be intelligent no, yeah. in a different yeah, yeah. sense than a machine learning one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, <laughs> uh, they were. Um, so, so automated theorem proving is actually really one of the first AI fields. Like um, Herbert Simon and Ellen Newell built this logic theorist, which might be officially the first AI system ever created, like back in the 50s. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so there was, the, 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 this is quite a bit of interesting history, that the, there was this fight between the, the logically oriented camp and the heuristically oriented camp, which was, for example, Her- Herbert Simon. Uh, and there, there were always these people who were saying, well, we, we have a well-defined terminating logic procedure for, for example, Pressburger arithmetic. So why would you design some incomplete, imperfect heuristics for solving problems in Pressburger arithmetic? And then there were these people like Herb Simon, which would say, well, obviously, yes, but this doesn't scale. So, so in general, mathematics is hard and whatever human intelligence is hard and we need to find heuristics, etc. So, so that sort of propagates to, for example, Doug Lennart with his AM and Eurisco systems, like the, this idea that you are using a lot of heuristics when you are solving problems and we somehow need to write down all these heuristics and that way we will program intelligent systems and there, there is the sort of in theorem proving automated theorem proving that there is the logicist camp which is not so much about the heuristics but much more about making more and more efficient inference rules like for example resolution so, so initially, people would start with some sort of British Museum algorithms, but then they would see that a lot of the search space can be traversed more efficiently by, for example, resolution or paramodulation. They, they would be able to prove that uh, you don't have to apply some inference rules because they are already subsumed by other inference rules. So, so these people would believe that they are creating intelligent programs but mm-hmm. yes, you are right in the sense that there was there was no machine learning components in in the in these systems at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so hopefully we we cleared up the uh, offensiveness there. Yeah. That's the the trouble with introducing these terms like intelligence. It yeah. gets uh, it, it gets unclear. But um, yeah. So then the. I guess the output you could think of, of of this step of the thesis was it was called MPTP. Yeah. So it was like this, yeah, this translation between the Mizar uh-huh. and the first order. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I was looking through some of your recent papers, and this is still in use today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. MPTP yeah. means it, it was a bit of a pun because uh, my good colleague Jeff Sutcliffe is the author of the TPTP library for automated theorem proofs, and he has been organizing the competition, the, the world championship in automated theorem proving for something like 20 or more years by now. 
And yeah, the, the, the TPDP library stands for thousands of problems for theorem proving. And, mm. you know, from, from Mizar, I could easily extract millions of problems for theorem proving. So, so I called it MPTP, but the, the pun was that it wasn't millions of problems for theorem proving, but the Mizar, Mizar problems for, for theorem proving. But it scared him anyway, so he quickly contacted me and we started to work together. <laughs> I see. And then um, the next step of the thesis looked at this problem of premise selection. So could you just introduce this idea? And then here's where you started to introduce the machine learning uh, mm -hmm. for this premise selection problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's the very first natural problem. So when you start to um, play with some large library of mathematics, for formal mathematics that you can translate to, to these automated theorem proofs and you you sort of so so what what i saw in the very first experiments is that so so this was also quite interesting in the sense that the these automated uh and interactive theorem communities were sort of mistrustful of each other so so the mizar people were telling me not not only that machine learning is like total nonsense, but also the automated theorem proving is like hopeless. Like these people cannot do anything. But but nobody at the time had any data. So so I, I really was, in my opinion, like the first guy who who did like like a really big experiment in looking at the whole library, translating it to, to the automated theorem proofs and asking, well, how, how many of these problems can we solve automatically with these automated theorem proofs? And the number which came out of it was something like 40% at the time, which, which was like pretty encouraging, like compared to what these mistrustful Mizar people were telling me that the automated theorem proofs are useless. Well, this was much better than useless. But the, 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 catch, the catch was, in uh, um, that I, I was um, giving to the automated theorem proofs only the axioms or theorems or lemmas that were selected by the human who wrote the Mizar proof. So, so I could mm -hmm. sort of extract from the Mizar proof what was needed for that proof from the very large Mizar library. And that that is fine. That's some sort of proof assistance already. Like you you tell me which axioms to use and I run the automated theorem proof on that and maybe I will give you the proof. But then you you would think that you want to go one step further and you you say, well here's the theorem that I want to prove and here is the big library of the things that have been proved already. Now, can you can you give me the proof? And and that that does, didn't work at all because the automated theorem proofs weren't constructed for that at the time. So people were typically solving problems with something like ten or twenty axioms with the automated theorem proofs at the time. Some sort of group group theory puzzle or some lattice theory puzzle, and giving it one thousand axioms to say nothing about like 40,000 axioms would already break break the parser of, of, of many of these systems, like practically all of these systems, 
to, to say nothing about the horrible combinatorial explosion that you, you would get um, if you manage to, to par, parse these things. So, so ne- neither the parser nor the indexing structures were prepared for just eating 40,000 axioms back in, I don't know, 2002 or three when I was doing these experiments. So in order to be able to, to do these, like here is the big library and here's the conjecture I want to prove, uh, I needed some AI-ish way of uh, selecting the most relevant facts or premises from the big library for the conjecture that you that you want to prove. And the way I did it was just to basically use some very simple machine learning system for, for that, like some basically naive base uh, machine learning. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's what I, what that, that's what be- became called a premise selection uh, later when we sort of fixed the terminology for that. So, so premise selection is that you, you have a big library, you have a conjecture that you want to prove on top of that library, and a premise selection algorithm is something that looks at the conjecture and chooses from that big library a set, a small, small set, like let's say 50 or 100 most relevant facts for proving the, the conjecture. Yeah, so those were kind of the two main parts of the thesis. And then one thing we like to do on the thesis review is to kind of look where it went from there and what stayed the same and what changed. So maybe starting with the premise selection, um, this is still a problem that people are looking into today, especially with deep neural networks, for instance. Do you see today's methods as being fundamentally similar to actually what you did in your thesis, just with different parts replaced? Or has there kind of been a shift in the way that we do premise selection now? Oh, good question. Uh, so I think some things definitely changed. I, I don't know like how, how big is the change. So, um, so, so like, well, what, what I did initially was to define some simple feature characterization of, of these mathematical objects, like formulas typically, and uh, now I, I basically ran some some simple machine learner uh, telling you like if you if you have these features of of the conjecture you want to prove, well then these are the objects, the, the sort of theorems and definitions that appeared most frequently in, in proofs that of similar uh, similar conjectures in in some sort of feature space like that, and mm-hmm. uh, so so this this can be very easily made into some deep learning thing, right? Like instead of having manually defined features. You, you go through some whatever, some convolutional layers or, or whatever, which, which extracts mm-hmm. the features somehow automatically for you. 
but but in the end the, the top player is still some 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 very simple machine learner that you could also run on the manual manual features so so in that sense you could say that um, this is just some sort of feature um, engineering turned into some embeddings and some convolutional layers or, or whatever. Then mm -hmm. uh, there, um, what, what, what happened, uh, what, what are the interesting, uh, I would say, developments is that, for example, gra graph neural networks appeared. So the, the strongest method that we have today is is a graph neural network that uh, let's say you have 1000 suspicious premises from which you want to choose let's say 100 so you put them all into a graph where you you connect the symbols and the terms that are shared and now you you are doing some sort of message passing on between between the terms constituting this relatively big graph and uh, you are jointly looking basically at all all these 1000 facts and and the message passing is is deciding what is the subgraph of of um, the, these 1000 formulas that will be most relevant so 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 then it's it's no longer selecting the most relevant facts in isolation, but it's selecting them uh, sort of dependently, right? Like you can, you, you have some sort of right. con convergent process. So, so it's, it's quite nice, right? Like it's a sort of a more complicated inference. Like you, like, like the, the neural network people to today talk about inference quite often, right? So, so that definitely the, the graph neural network is is doing some inference when you run it on on some data set when it has been trained so so that that's in my opinion quite different from what we were doing initially the the same with like recurrent neural networks so we, we did it only quite recently so you you can for example start with the conjecture that you want to prove and then uh run with a recurrent neural network through, let's say, the tokenized conjecture or have some tree, tree neural network or whatever, which, which gives you some initial embedding of, of the conjecture. And then you can start some decoding process that will be like telling you like th this, this is the first most likely premise that you should use and that changes your state and now based on the change state it will choose the next premise etc so you you will you can basically cast it as a as a translation problem and like we have done it like when we uh use recurrent neural networks or transformers for for, for this sort of translation style generation of um, various sequences of premises and it's it's definitely doing something different than than the other methods so, so I would say that this is also like quite quite a different paradigm from just mm, here, here is the query and what what are the 
10 most relevant things for, for that query. It sort of keeps some consistency. Because, for example, what, what, what happens quite often is that you have two very similar theorems. Uh, they, they may even be equivalent in, in your database. And mm -hmm. people are using them equivalently. And both of them may be highly relevant for your uh, conjecture. But uh, if, you, if you do it like independently, like the proposing of the relevant facts, both of them will be high. But if you do it like in this sort of machine translation way, then you will choose one of them and then the state will change and the state will tell you, well, you have already, you have already the logical content there uh, of this particular thing. So you, you don't need the other one. Uh, so so you, you will typically not choose the other one once this first one is there. So it somehow keeps, keeps the consistence of the, some sort of internal consistence of, of this set of premises for, for you. And then, so for, for premise selection, do you think that these methods are ultimately limited by data somehow? And that we have to figure out how to, for instance, use transfer learning from some unsupervised objectives? Or is there possibly some iterative, almost like self-play type mechanism that we could use to iteratively Im improve these systems? Um, or do we really just have to build larger and larger data sets? Do you have a sense about that? Um, I think these are a couple of questions, all of them interesting. So the <laughs> the the data, like I, I remember when I was starting to collaborate with Jeff Sutcliffe and I scared him with this millions of problems for theorem proving, whereas he had only 1,000. And, and he, he, he wrote me this email, like, why don't you generate all, all of the problems from the Mizar? And you know, like at the time I had this graph, this sort of inference graph of the Mizar library, which somehow goes from the axioms and the definitions to, to the theorems, to the most advanced theorems. And if you, if you do like chasing of these, of these graphs, like you can, for each of the nodes in the graph, you can construct a problem by looking at its immediate parents in the graph. But then you can go further, right? Like you can recursively expand it to the next level. You can take an arbitrary uh, sort of subset of its uh, ancestors, which is which sort of guarantees the logical power, right? So that you have each of the parents covered by the ancestors. So, so if you mm -hmm. compute the size of this graph, you, you well, of, of the number of problems you can generate just from Mizar, then you probably go over the number of particles in, in, the, in the universe. So, so like, like if, if, you, if you want to do your data augmentation, here you go, right? Like you, you have virtually unlimited methods for generating problems. Uh, so, uh, so it, it has, never been about not having enough uh, data to to prove for, from it's it, it has always been more about well we actually cannot even prove the simplest stuff like we, we cannot 
like, like I said, that initially we could prove something like 40% of these theorems from their immediate parents. Uh, in the in the very last evaluation that we just finished, we can do like uh, three quarters of, of the Mizar theorem. So obviously the library changed in the 20 years. It became bigger and more advanced. But, but in, in, in this setting, when you are proving theorems only from their parents, we, we still cannot do the full Mizar library using even very well-trained uh, automated theorem proofs. Uh, and I, I would say also like this data augmentation helps quite a bit. So we, we have done experiments where we, uh, for example, prove the intermediate lemmas and we learn the premise selection from from the proofs and it it helps to to like improve the premise selection on on the top level lemmas only so so that that's um, that's all quite interesting and then the the second comment that i had was um, that like this premise selection task it's some sort of proxy task for me like uh it it needed to be done to to get at least started with being useful for for, for the people who actually use a formal proof assistance uh mm-hmm. but you know like what, what what is premise selection you you have a large library of of theorems and now you know there are some proofs of your conjecture there like typically many of them, right? Many alternative proofs. And you are somehow shooting for, for the ones that will be reasonably easy for your automated theorem prover to complete, to, to, to find. Mm-hmm. And but if you, if you look into it, it's it's actually a proof search. So, so what you are doing when you are doing premise selection is that you are approximating the proof search uh, like all, all, all these possible proof searches which are out there and you, you want at least one, one reasonable that, that will give you a good chance. So in, in some sense, the, the premise selection task is um, a demonstration of how, uh, how the machine learning can work in some like simplified context where it, where it doesn't see the real stuff that is going on, like the inferences between the, the different theorems in the library and how it will interact and create all, all these complicated inference graphs. Uh, and it's, 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 it's just this sort of oversimplified task, which, which is sort of hiding the, the real complexity uh, under that. So that's, that's another con- comment. Uh, it's 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 like an interesting phenomenon with machine learning, right? Like you you typically get a lot of mileage from machine learning systems, which you know are stupid, right? Like it's some naive base or whatever. It doesn't understand any reasoning, but it's still doing a lot of uh, interesting, useful stuff for you based on some features, for example, right? Like it knows when it sees a theorem from group theory that. It shouldn't use theorems from topology, for example. So, so you, well, what the machine learning, even the very ma- simple machine learning systems do, is to is to filter out 
like the total junk, right? Like the total nonsense. Uh, but you, you, you know, like maybe, for example, these graph neural networks, they are starting to emulate some sort of inferencing mechanisms when they are doing premise selection. But that certainly wasn't the case with the simpler machine learners. And the transfer learning, uh, yeah. So, so each each of these each of these data sets is sort of idiosyncratic in the sense that, for example, the the way how you translate uh, from Mizar to the automated theorem previous can differ. So you can you can really make the representations look quite different and what what happens typically quite often today like with transformers and graph neural networks and all of this is that they they are very easy to confuse like like to to make make them very good on on these particular representations and and very bad when you slightly change the representation and uh then then things will things will go wrong so mm -hmm. uh yeah so i i don't know like of course like you probably know this better than me like there is a lot of research how to make things more transferable how how to uh how to train from more data how to make the data more robust etc and that's that's all very interesting and i i think it's very open i uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how far it can go and with what methods, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then I wanted to ask about this distinction between informal, if you will, mathematics, like the mathematics that we might do with a pencil and paper and formal mathematics. So there's obviously something really nice about formal mathematics that um, we have these ways of doing some form of evaluation or, or checking of it it can kind of build on build on itself um, but then there's also something nice about informal mathematics that we can have a kind of common sense that we don't have to write down every every step we can um, you know just have kind of partial proofs with the understanding that the other parts are uh, are taken care of so how do you think about this distinction in terms of machine learning, do you think that this is also something valuable to look into trying to do this mathematical reasoning on the informal text? Mm -hmm. uh, well, definitely. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I totally, uh, totally believe that uh, learning on the informal representation is a very, very interesting topic. Uh, and we are, we are sort of getting there today uh, uh, like we, we are starting to have the methods that can do do something there, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I I would say uh, the well, like like you said with, with, with formal math you have the ground truth right like you 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 need to learn from something and uh, like if if you have some huge corpus of informal math. And mm, there will be a ton of proofs in it. Uh, I, I bet 
Oh, I, I actually did this with a transformer uh, on the Mizar library, and like you, you probably know 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 this work by Andrei Karpaty from two, 2015 when he when he ran it over the Linux kernel and over the stacks uh, stacks um, informal mathematical corpus, and he produced LaTeX that he could sort of almost compile, and it looks like math if you are not a mathematician. So, so it's it's already for some five years. It it wasn't too difficult to get your transformer or language model or current neural network or whatever to, to produce something that looks like mathematics. But the problem with that that it's like producing rubbish typically, right? So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so so then uh, so then if you if you train on a really, really big corpus of correct formal proofs, well, then, then it's get better and better. So I think the OpenAI people tried really hard recently, and they they like trained some GPT three like crazy, and um, it's uh, it's it's sort of starting to produce correct proofs. And like I said, I I did something like that with like GPT-2 on, on, on Mizar. And yeah, it's, it's sometimes it really produces co correct proofs and sometimes they are even uh, sort of new, even though not much new, like there may be uh, like a change in sign, for example. So, so you can turn the less or equal into greater or equal and then everything will work in, in the proof. So it, you, you can see how the transformer works there, that, that it sort of makes a small mistake in some embedding, and then it consistently finishes the proof using that embedding, for, for example. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that's all, all cool and nice, but what you, what you also want to have is this ground level where when you have a really new proof, really unorthodox proof that you came to by some hard thinking or just by brute force or some, some sort of guided exploration, you, you need somebody who, who doesn't tell you, well, this is very different from what I have seen so far. So this is most likely false. You, you need somebody who tells you, well, this is true. And that, that's like where the logic comes in, right? Like that's the sort of bottom ground level uh, which which tells you yes you have you have one and even though no uh, trained uh, monkey would tell you that this is true, I as the logician have checked all the steps and I confirm that no matter how unusual it is it is true. So that that's yeah. that's really yeah a very cool thing in formal mathematics which uh, like we. We, we don't have it too much in other fields, like maybe playing games is a bit like that, right? Like when you do the alpha zero thing, in the end, somebody finishes the game and the rules tell you that the white one, right? Or the black black one, but it's, it's, it's quite, I would say, unusual in the sort of supervised machine learning uh, setting to, to have this notion of ground uh, ground truth for for very unusual alt alternative um, outcomes 
Yeah, so so then one nice, I guess, intermediate between these two things, and we also talked about this with Christian Segedi, who is on the podcast, is this idea of auto-formalization. Mm-hmm. So you actually looked into this in terms of like translating mm-hmm. the informal to the formal. Yep. And I just want to ask, like, after working on that project, did you get a sense that this problem of translation is really difficult or that it might actually be possible to do this translation? Yeah, uh, so we, we did it in basically two ways. Like one, one was using probabilistic context-free grammars that were actually not context-free when we, we made them more complicated, like by looking at the probabilities of the parsing subtrees. And then we, uh, so, so, so there, because it was sort of transparent, we, we could, for example, employ some type checking based pruning immediately during the parsing process. So, so that, that was quite nice. And then, then one day we just made a big synthetic corpus based on Mizar, like between LaTeX and formal like Mizar formulas. And we just threw at it, uh, the, the state of the art neural machine translation toolkit. And it gave us quite surprising results. Like we, I think the, the success on previously unseen data was something like 50% or something like that. But then, then again, the, the data was really like synthetically generated, even though the algorithm which generated the LaTeX is quite non-trivial. It's, it's been an algorithm which has been improved over something like 20 years by, by the Mizar people. But, but it really it really surprised me in how good the, the recurrent neural network with attention was. And then like one, one more thing that we did about one or two years ago was to try unsupervised uh, machine learning. And that actually, it, it wasn't as good as the supervised machine learning at the time, but it was also at least all on short uh, formulas, it was also working quite surprisingly nicely. Uh, so, uh, I like, like a general comment about this is that this is really experimental science and quite, quite often, like, like I, I learned this long time ago when I got this 40% of Mizar proved by the automated theorem proofs. Pe- people have all sorts of opinions, like this is impossible or this cannot work, etc. And you, you really don't know until you try what, what is the truth, like how good are the system, how good are the methods. So, so it's, it's, it's really sort of interesting that you really have to interact with the systems and sort of learn from them, like how good they are and what they are capable of, and then explore why are they not capable of doing this next thing yet and think like why to f- how how to fix that basically uh so mm-hmm. uh so if you ask me before the experiments like what's the chance i would probably tell you i i don't know and then maybe i i would give you some lower estimate than what we achieved and it surprised me quite a bit and it, it seems to me like just just sort of now that I sort of understand a bit better what these methods are doing, uh, 
I, I would say that there is not so much um, like surprisingness or heterogeneity in in the math that people are writing. It's it's sort of if if you look at archive or the Mizar library or <clears throat> all, all all these formal libraries, there there is a lot of um, regularity, and I I don't really see why <clears throat> sorry. This task should be much harder than translation between natural languages. So I, I have really high hopes for a translation between informal and formal math. Yeah, that's interesting that it surprised you. And it, it's exciting then looking forward because we don't know whether there's more surprises to come. Yeah. <laughs> so um, just due to time, we'll go to the two questions that I always end the thesis review with. The first is, if you can think back to when you were doing your PhD, um, what what would you say was your objective function? So was it kind of just trying to get through the PhD or was it like scientific exploration? And would you say that that objective function changed over time? Oh, uh, yeah, nice. Uh, so I would say actually already when I started to, to study math, I, I knew like that this is scientific exploration for me. I, 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 I basically knew that like, uh, well, at, at least the assumption at the time was that I will not ever be making a living as a mathematician, that, that like I was studying eco economics at, at, at the same, same time to do something practical, which will make me a living. And for example, the situation, which is today that you can really make big bucks working for some AI company. That, that that's really very surprising to me like it, it sort of emerged only only recently well, like the way how to make big bucks 20 years ago was to work as a consultant for some or whatever bank or whatever uh, so it it was like the um, the main thing there is that i i really wanted to understand what mathematics and human thinking is about and uh, this um, this sort of exploration like uh, that I felt that I am I am not doing something very advanced or intellectual when I'm learning math and then I'm, I'm able to prove theorems myself it looked reasonably learnable and algorithmic and uh, it, it felt like, you, you know, like we, we were all taught that like math can be reduced to these foundations like set theory, et cetera. And then physics can, can be largely reduced to like some whatever differential geometry or some, some various parts of mathematics. So, so a, lo a lot of the stuff that the physicists are doing are, are mathematics basically so so that the, there is a sort of re reductionist view of science that everything can be reduced basically to logic right uh and actually ai ai was very much playing with that idea back in the i don't know 50s 60s 70s like let, let's reduce everything to theorem proving right and it sort of didn't work right for all sorts of reasons uh but uh yeah i i was the, the objective function was that this is really the coolest problem 
I can I can start to think about and investigate, and uh, it would be it would be really cool if if the computers could could solve hard problems in in this very expressive formalism where we sort of believe that almost any other scientific problem, if it's worth anything, can be translated to to, to mathematics. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to do some something interesting and useful. And mm -hmm. that that was probably it. I I, I was I, I would say I, I was really totally negligent of the um, pragmatic issues. I, I I wasn't paid any decent money as a PhD student. I, I, I sort of didn't care. It, it, it was also really nice that already like in the 90s or early 2000s, you could just have your own computer and you could be doing all these things by yourself. Like you didn't need to be a member of some big lab, etc. You the, the this sort of freedom and power of you being there as a scientist or a programmer and, and writing the ultimate AI algorithm, which will solve everything. Like it's, it's, it's really, it's, 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 it's so much feeling of like you, it's, it's now all in your hands and you can change the world and do cool things. So, so I would say yeah. that this has been always like the objective function for me. Yeah. 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 And you can even get access to the Mizar source code if you write the article. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah and then so then the the last question is if you think back um can you come up with one piece of advice that a new researcher could keep in mind and it doesn't have to be all-encompassing it could even just be some use useful kind of heuristic or it could be something grand but uh can you think of one piece of advice to offer to a new researcher oh uh... I, I would say uh, don't join the crowds. Uh, think for yourself what, what, what is the really interesting underlying problems that are out there. Don't be too alarmed that you are not in the hottest community or whatever it is currently. Like I, I have been in my own sort of singleton community for most of my life, and I sort of didn't care too much. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, just if you, you you should really think deeply about your problem, like why why are you working on this? Like, is this the 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 thing where if you come up with something, it will change things? profoundly, uh, rather than sort of jumping at the next transformer architecture. Or, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying any, anything about, like, I, I like what people are doing in deep learning, etc. But uh, I, I think, for example, today there are really, like, interesting questions, like, how do we learn complicated algorithms? And uh, that that seems to be slightly, for example, escaping the, the deep learning mainstream, uh, at least for, for me. So, uh, and, and it 
sort of link very much to, to the question, how do we learn to do mathematics? So, so really go, go deep in the justifications of how, how big and how disruptive or how transformative is, is the thing that, that you are doing, what is the ultimate motivation for that? So, so that, that's like one sort of this, this grand advice. I, I could do a second one, like learn a good data processing language that, that's on, on the different scale, right? Like it's like, what, what, what I needed to do for a lot of, of my like work life was the pro process data sets. So, so, so if you, if you want, want a very like bottom, bottom level advice, le learn a good data mm -hmm. processing language. Yeah. So don't, don't be afraid to not follow the crowd. And when you're not following them, make sure you have your languages sorted out. <laughs> so yeah. that's really great. And, um, I think that's a perfect place to end. So thanks so much for taking the time to come on the thesis review. This is really interesting. There's a lot more questions I have. You're doing fascinating work. So thanks so much. Oh, uh, thanks. My pleasure for doing the interview. It was really, really nice. Thanks. Thanks for the questions. Um, good luck with your research and everything. <laughs> thanks.